0: So if we look at the next part two, the project organization, explain the way in which an organizational breakdown structure is used to create a responsibility assignment matrix, explain the role and key responsibilities of the project manager, differentiate between the responsibilities of the project manager and the project sponsor throughout the project. 1.5 describe the other roles within the project management, including users, project team members, and the project steering group slash board, And the product owner. 1.6 described the functions and benefits of different types of project offices including project program portfolio management office embedded PMO central PMO and hub and spoke PMO. So an organizational breakdown structure or commonly abbreviated as OBS represents a temporary organization required to deliver a project It shows the lines of delegation and who reports to whom. So I always think of an OBS as sort of like an org chart that you'll see in an HR department. HR will often send out an org chart that's updated and say, we have a new CFO, we have a new controller, here is the new org chart and who reports to who, and it has the boxes of who reports to which person and the little lines and arrows that that show the reporting functions. It is exactly the same thing except for it's for a project. So it's a much smaller one. It will show the steering group and the sponsor near the top and the project manager perhaps under them. It might show that there's a project management office that works with the project manager or works above them. It will show that there's suppliers that are in this and how their organization is set up. The team members and the reporting structure into the project itself will be there, as well as users and testers, et cetera. So it is an organizational chart same one that you'll often see in HR, but in this case, it will be for a project. Now, a responsibility assignment matrix is a way of integrating your breakdown, your OBS, your organizational breakdown structure, with another breakdown structure. And that one is the WBS, the work breakdown structure. So firstly, let's look at the work breakdown structure part of this equation that makes up a responsibility assignment matrix. The work breakdown structure will show all the activities that need to be done, the deliverables for a project, because those have been broken out. And the organizational breakdown structure will show the team members themselves, so who the individual team members are and what positions they hold within the project. So what you do is you combine those two things so you can very simply show who is responsible for what. So if there's a work breakdown structure work package and it says testing, you may see the testing manager being responsible for that. So the word responsibility assignment matrix comes from the fact that the responsibility has been assigned to them from the WBS. So the WBS will be one side of the matrix. Maybe the x-axis and the y-axis could be the actual roles and responsibilities themselves. That gives everybody in the stakeholders a very clear um, description and a common understanding of who is responsible f- for delivering what on a project. And the fact that it has a, it traces itself back to the work breakdown structure, which is where our scope comes from, as well as the OBS, which is where our human resources for the project comes from. It unites those two um, in, a, in a very effective, coordinated way. You will see things on there. For example, you might say, let's take our example where we have testing and a test manager, you'll see, you'll hear the word RACI very often, which is R-A-C-I. And that's an acronym. That is um, responsible, accountable, consult, and inform. So accountable means that you are the one who ultimately answers. So for example, we keep saying that the sponsor is accountable for the business case. They're the ones that own the business case. They could delegate tracking um, benefits to another person, make them responsible. But at the end of the day, if those benefits do not come true, if we were projected to make $200,000 in a year and we don't, we only make $100,000, the accountability for that, the person who has to answer for that is going to be the sponsor. The same thing with a RACI diagram. So if someone is accountable, if it's A next to their name, the test manager is accountable for testing. That means if there's any problems with the testing, they're the ones that have to answer to that. If the testing goes really, really well, they take credit for running things in such a way in which it actually worked and achieved the benefits that it was meant to. Accountability cannot be delegated. You cannot say, okay, you're accountable for that now. The only way you could do that is perhaps if you left the company. (laughs) (laughs) Then someone else would have to be accountable. But you can delegate responsibility. You can say, I am making you responsible for, and let's continue with our example with testing. I'll make you responsible for testing the environment to make sure the environment is ready to take on this new product. So I make you responsible. I'm accountable for that, but I'm going to have my test manager Um, Responsible for that. I will make a tester responsible for 10 of the 200 test scripts. You're responsible for these 10. So they're delegating responsibility, they're making someone else responsible, but ultimately they're still the ones that are accountable. If it goes wrong, they're the ones that would have to answer to it. Consult would mean that you should consult this individual when you're doing the work. It's kind of like they're subject matter experts. So if you're doing a design, You might consult with a business analyst who has done that design before in the past. Um, And then inform is simply make sure that they're in the loop for communications. So as in using our test example again, as testing results come in, you may want to inform the sponsor as to how that test is progressing. The sponsor is not going to be responsible for it. They're not you don't consult with the sponsor, the sponsor may know nothing about testing, but you need to inform them. So in that case, they'll get an I. So by using the WBS and the OBS, and then putting in R, A, C, or I, it will give everyone a clear understanding of who's accountable, who's responsible, who should be consulted, and who should be uh, informed about the key deliverables of the project. And the key thing is it shows who is doing what. So moving on, some of the things that a sponsor and a project manager will do during the life cycle of a project. So we'll take this by phase. Uh, In the concept phase, the outline business case is created, and the project manager may help with that the person accountable for that will be the sponsor. And securing funding, the accountable party for that will be the sponsor. They are the executive. They're the ones that have the power in order to get the resources needed in order to run the project. As we move into the definition, so we've got approve the project manager. It would be nice if the project manager was the one responsible for that or accountable for that, but they're not. It's the sponsor. The sponsor's job is to pick a project manager, recruit them, and get them on the project to appoint them and say, you are the project manager for this project. I am the sponsor. And the sponsor will approve the PMP. So you can look into the um, definition of that in your PMQ book from Provec. But as we've said before, the PMP is the master plan that shows what our schedule is, what our budget is, what our quality requirements are, how we're going to manage risks what approaches we're taking on the project what's the scope it's a bunch of disparate documents that work together in a collective collaborative integrative way so approving that is the job of the sponsor developing the team and planning the project so creating the pmp will be the uh, responsibility of the project manager there'll be subject matter experts and team members that will help with that project that process but they will ultimately be the ones responsible for making it. Then we move into deployment. So during deployment, the sponsor will support the project manager, help with decision-making, help assure that the right uh, resources are available to the project manager. They'll monitor the external environment. And what that means is that could be politics. So if there's negative stakeholders that may not want the project to progress, they'll use their influencing, their conflict management, their soft skills, in order to help that project succeed, to shield the project from that kind of negativity. Um, Other external factors could be finance, if there's major finance decisions that are going on above the project that could affect the project, helping advocate for the project to make sure that it gets the resources and the money that it needs to continue. Um, And managing senior stakeholders. So that's above and beyond the remit of a project manager. So a sponsor is an executive, they should have influence. They should have the right amount of legitimate power in order to influence key executives within the organization so that the project continues and is looked upon in a favorable light, continually reminding them what the business case is and the benefits that will come out at the end of the project, which will help the organization. During deployment, the project manager issues the work packages. So they'll have a team. And there'll be a list of activities that go along with every major deliverable. So you might have a work package on the design, creating a design for the solution that is going to deliver the benefits. That work package will be delegated perhaps to a business analyst or specialist to create the design. So issuing the work packages, delegating them out to the appropriate skill levels, the appropriate resources is a big job for the project manager during deployment also managing risks issues and changes so all those come to the project manager manager first project manager is key to identifying the risks watching the risks monitoring them with the team and determining when they become issues determining when those issues should be escalated change requests will come to the project manager first in most cases in organizations and the Project manager will record the change. They may not make the final decision on whether the change should be made to the project or not. That will go before change re- um, review board of which the sponsor will be part of. But a project manager will be a key part of a change request process, documenting, analyzing, articulating, and communicating the changes themselves. Monitoring and reporting. Status reports, progress reports are all part of what a project manager does. And the soft skills. Influencing, motivating a team, making sure that motivation stays high, that people stay on the objectives, that any conflict that needs to be addressed is worked through collaboratively, it's confronted, it's solved, it isn't something that's ignored, so that the team can coalesce and start to perform as it works its way through its life cycle. When we get to transition, the sponsor signs off on the project, saying, I'm happy that this was done. (laughs) That's the goal. So that the product can be moved into business as usual and the project can be closed. It ensures business continuity. So as the product gets released into business as usual, ensuring that it doesn't interrupt anything, that normal business as usual activities still take place. It monitors and tracks the benefits, is what a sponsor does, that is a key role. They own the business case. They're accountable for the business case. So they have to come up with a way of tracking these benefits, watching them come in, making any needed corrections if they don't come in correctly or to plan. (laughs) And then in the transition phase, the project manager will do the following things. They'll conduct the handover. They'll conduct the post-project review collecting the lessons learned, rewards and recognitions, formally closing out the contracts themselves, formally closing out the project and lessons learned so that they can be disseminated to other project managers and other components of the organization, and formally disband the team. There is no responsibility for the project manager in benefits realization. That's important to note. After transition, once a project's closed, the project project manager moves on to another project. I can say from experience that there's hundreds of projects that I've done and I don't know very much about the benefit realization part. I had been moved over to another project. It was the sponsor that came in and took over this part of the project lifecycle called the extended project lifecycle. And the specific phase is benefits realization. And that's monitoring the benefits, tracking the benefits and doing everything within their power to make those benefits come true, realizing the benefits. So just to summarize on this, this difference between sponsors and project managers. So sponsor, to summarize, creating, maintaining the business case, committing the resources, acquiring those resources from the organization, approving the project progression through gates, so the go, no-go decision as the project progresses falls within the sponsor's remit. Approving the level of risk exposure, so making sure that the organization isn't exposed to too much risk. They're not taking on some crazy project that if it fails is going to cost the company hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds and could put it in debt. Making sure that that scenario doesn't happen is a key element of what a project sponsor does. Um, acts is the ultimate authority on change, so change control, the person who has the go-no-go decision on change control, will be the sponsor sign off on completed projects responsible for successful transition and putting those products that were created the outputs of the project into use in operations or in other words in business as usual that falls underneath the project sponsor so the project manager creating and maintaining the PMP managing the team the day-to-day running of a team as they work their way through the project life cycle preparing and presenting information so reports stage gate reviews uh, status reports test plans test results handover documentation post-project implementation review documentation all of that falls underneath the project manager Um, identifying and assessing the risks so producing suitable mitigation plans cost plans recommending corrective actions re-estimating Uh, as more information becomes available and estimates become more accurate, recommending contingency amounts for risks, monitoring risks, escalating issues and the like, all files with the project manager, Uh, managing the change control process itself, so the step-by-step process where a change request could turn into an actual project change, and being responsible for closing out the project, conducting post-project reviews So let's look at the role of the steering group or the project board. So the steering group is used on many projects. They support the sponsor with decision-making. Ultimately, the sponsor is accountable. The final decision is theirs. But the steering group will consult them. They will make their recommendations known. And it brings a number of key stakeholders to view to a project at a senior level. So often represented will be heads of departments. So if it is an engineering department, you could have the head of engineering as part of the steering group. Finance managers could be there. If there's a client that's involved, sometimes you'll see them sit on it, or a supplier. They'll call it the senior supplier will actually sit on the steering board to represent the interests of the supplier. Um, Chaired by the sponsor. Again, they have the ultimate decision. It helps with escalations. So it's a body that is there for management by exception. So if there's a change request, which is an exception, they can help with um, analyzing that and making a determined determination and assisting the sponsor in making a decision whether to accept the change. What to do with issues that the project team can't resolve. It's beyond their power to resolve. Maybe it's something organization level that's affecting the project or something external to the project in the outside world in the project environment that they could assist with and help the sponsor resolve those issues. The users are a group of people who are gonna work with and use the deliverables. So sometimes they're a client, oftentimes it's business as usual. So they're gonna use the outputs of the project itself so if you're making a new computer system, once a computer system goes live, they're the ones that use it. So they have a key stake in how this is going to look, and therefore they're gonna have requirements, and those requirements are gonna be captured during the concept phase, and are going to help build the scope and how the project is, what the project is ultimately going to deliver. They ensure that the project stays on achieving those requirements, that it doesn't turn into a pet project, that the requirements don't go off into one area and the actual scope of the project goes into another and there's no meeting between the two. They help keep the project scope aligned with the requirements so that the project does what it was set out to do in the first place. With iterative projects, this is often done through frequent demoing, so you constantly get to see the work as it progresses all the way through the project lifecycle. As they use the products, they deliver benefits. So if it's automation and they're now more efficient, then that efficiency is providing a benefit. If they're selling the product to the outside world for Christmas, for example, and sales go up, that is a benefit. So by them getting out there and using it and selling the product to others, they're generating revenue. So it's the use of those products that delivers the benefit to the organization once the project has been completed. The product owner... So this approach is found usually in iterative life cycles or agile, and they are exactly what you would expect. A product owner owns the product. So if you have a product that's being sold like an application on, on an iPhone, for example, maybe it's a mapping application or an application that keeps track of your heartbeat or something of that nature, they will own that product. So any new features that are added to it, to make it better, to make it more viable, to stop it from becoming obsolete, the product owner will determine what changes, what additions should be made to that product to keep it viable so that it continues to generate benefits for the organization itself. So they understand the business objectives and they are experts on exactly what their, what their product is and they're experts on what their customers want from that product and what is happening with, the, with, the, with competition as well. So they understand the vision and they communicate it to the team and they make decisions about what updates and what changes and what addition and what new functionality should be made to a product. It will drive the scope of what a agile project team will work on. It will come from the product owner who will siphon off scope to them to work on within their time box. Project team members. So they'll be taking direction from the team manager, the project manager, or both, depending on the organization If its matrix, it will be both. Project organization from the project manager or a functional organization, they'll take it right from their line manager. Um, but for the project, they'll be working with the project manager. They'll agree the plan. So they'll have input into the plan. If there's a schedule made, they'll review it and say, yes, I think that's realistic, that is achievable. They will deliver the work that has to be done in work packages. So the work packages will outline the key deliverable that needs to be made, the activities that need to be done in order to create that deliverable, and the team member executes that to actually produce the products. They can be project managers themselves within their own supplier organization. So you might have a supplier that is... Um, that you're using goods from so you've made a buy decision so you're using consultants from an outside organization and that organization might have a project manager they could be part of your team as well Um, and they'll perform quality checks team members themselves so when they make things they're responsible for the quality of what they've made so if they're writing code they can't just wash their hands of it send it over testing and say I'm done they have to be responsible for making sure that they're delivering quality code to the test team A project office is an organization that supplies supplies support for a project team. So it's a very, very simple definition, but there's a number of things that they can do. And when you do have them, they're worth their weight in gold. They're absolutely invaluable. So one of the things that they do is process improvement. A project management office concerns itself with making sure that all the projects across an organization all the projects that fall with underneath their remit are using good practice so they'll often bring in methodology like an APM or a Prince2 or an agile promote that methodology train it. They'll watch projects as they work their way through their life cycle. They'll look for ways to improve those. They'll collect lessons learned across projects and try to disseminate that and implement changes across the project in order to continually improve how projects are run within the organization. They can take a tact when it comes to resource flexibility, so assisting projects with the allocation of resources. So they'll have a top-level view. So if one project is falling behind, they may siphon uh, resources from another project that might be ahead in their schedule to the project that's behind to maintain the integrity of the schedule baseline. So moving resources around, making resources available across them. They'll often um, supply administrative support as well. So the project manager is freed up to actually manage and lead the project and produce the outcomes that are required in order to meet the benefits. They'll often help them out with things like time cards and expenses and all of the administrative functions that goes along with being a project manager. Um, They can supply expertise as well. So senior project managers can mentor junior project managers within a PMO environment. Or they can get experts on say scheduling or experts on Microsoft Project or SharePoint or any of the tools that are used. They can be there to help support And get expertise available to help the project team understand technology so that they can leverage it and be more efficient in their work. So, we're gonna look at some PMOs, some different types of them. They come in a few different flavors, um, and we're gonna look at three of those. We're gonna look at an embedded PMO, a central PMO, and a hub and spoke PMO. We'll look at the central PMO first, because that one is in essence, easiest to understand and is the most common. A central PMO sits above projects and programs, and it has a number of projects and programs reporting into it. Normally, there's one PMO for an organization, though it is, or one central PMO for an organization, though you may have a central PMO, for example, the Americas, and a central PMO for Europe. But In essence, what you'll normally see, just by the name, central, it's going to be one PMO, and the projects are gonna be reporting to it. So it's all very centralized. And they do all the things that we talked about previously. So resource allocation, promoting good practice, consistency in, in reporting, consistency in the way that projects are estimated, that schedules are created, providing expertise All of those things will be done by a central PMO that sits centrally in the organization and projects will report into it. An embedded PMO, these are for very, very large projects normally. You have a project that has its own PMO, its own support function. So if you were looking at, say, the Olympics, it's a one-off project. It is large enough to justify having an embedded PMO. So the project managers will be working on the various components to get ready for the Olympics, the tracks and the facilities and the communication and the marketing and everything that has to occur in order to make the Olympics happen on the day that it is supposed to happen. And they'll have a PMO support them. So there'll be admins helping them out through the day-to-day. There'll be format, um, centralized formatting of reports they will be good practice that will be promoted from that embedded PMO. So it's like the project has its own little PMO because it justifies it through its size and its complexity that will perform all the functions that a PMO will do. But instead of being central to an organization, they are specific to a specific project. Hub and spoke is when you have a central PMO, but then you have smaller PMOs dotted around strategically. So I've seen a few of these on international projects in my time. So you'll have a centralized project management office that's performing all the functions a PMO normally would. So promoting good practice, providing resources, um, providing standardized format on reporting, allowing for subject matter experts to be available, setting up gates and no-go decisions and helping facilitate all of that and the admin. All of those things will still be done by the central PMO but there'll be strategic project offices located around the globe to help with, say, a worldwide initiative. So you might have a central office in Paris, and then what the the project is is that every single office around the world of a large banking firm needs to upgrade their communication network. So there'll be a small PMO located in all the major offices so that on-site co-located with the actual stakeholders will be a PMO and a project manager that will run the communication upgrade for that specific region. So you might have the Edinburgh PMO will be the spoke and then the hub, the middle, will be Paris. So you have a PMO that's located that's right there on location co-located with the project team and a centralized one that's at the central office That is what's known as hub and spoke PMO.